0: Welcome to the Cocky Ride, home for Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, an abridged history of the McRib sandwich. Astronauts have leveled up their taco game by growing chili peppers in space. And Tropicana just introduced their own line of toothpaste. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Alright, so yesterday I mentioned how I started falling down a McRib rabbit hole before having to cut myself off to get the podcast out, so, well, I went back down the rabbit hole later. So, in honor of its recent return and its 40th anniversary, here is an abridged history of that controversial, boneless barbecue pork sandwich, the McRib. The McRib was first test marketed in 1981 and was the creation of Rene Arend, a luxury chef from Luxembourg who was McDonald's first executive chef and also the man who created the recipe for the Chicken McNugget two years previously. As Arend told Maxim in 2009, quote, The McNuggets were so well-received that every franchise wanted them. There wasn't a system to supply enough chicken. We had to come up with something to give the other franchises as a new product. So the McRib came about because of the shortage of chickens, end quote. And that was a whole nationwide shortage of chicken meat, by the way, and it was directly caused by the popularity of Chicken McNuggets. Now, Ren's inspiration for the sandwich came from a trip to Charleston, South Carolina, where he tried true Southern barbecue, including pulled pork sandwiches, and decided something with that taste could be perfect to fill the company's need for a non-chicken dish. But before Wren began tinkering with the recipe for a Southern barbecue-style pork sandwich, there was another innovation that had to happen. Quoting Thrillist, It all began in the late 1960s at a military research center in a little town called Natick, Massachusetts. There, scientists banded together to create a weapon of mass deliciousness—restructured meat. And that may not sound very good, but if you love chicken nuggets or, well, the McRib, you've been eating it for years without a second thought. Restructured meat is pretty much what it sounds like, usually discarded, but perfectly edible. We really can't stress that enough. Animal parts mashed together to create a meat log of sorts. For the military, restructured meat quickly became standard fare in MRE packets, short for meal ready to eat. For us civilians, it soon spread to the fast food industry. Around 1970, Professor Roger Mandingo of the University of Nebraska tapped into the military's meat-scrambling technology to create a pork chop-style patty from a mix of pork shoulder and other meat using a binding agent made from animal protein, end quote. Arend and the team at McDonald's found Mandingo's work and applied the technology to the sandwich they were working on. The binding process allowed them to shape their pork patty into that iconic shape that resembles a rack of ribs, even though technically the patty itself is mostly shoulder meat. Anyways, McDonald's finally nailed the taste and design and introduced the McRib in 1982, adding pickles and onions and encasing the fake rack of ribs in a homestyle roll. But it was far from an instant hit. Thanks to heavy advertising, a lot of people tried it, but not many people went back for a second one. Some didn't like the taste and a lot of others mentioned how messy it was. For the rest of the 1980s, the McRib went in and out of different markets around the U.S., foreshadowing its ephemeral appearances now. By the late 80s, McDonald's had already figured out their limited availability scheme as a moneymaker for the McRib, but it still wasn't a huge seller. That changed in 1994. As part of a tie-in promotion for the Steven Spielberg-produced live-action Flintstones movie, the McRib was back on menus, and somehow the combination of the two, or just the weird place that our taste buds were at in '94, made it more popular than ever, causing McDonald's to keep the sandwich on the menu. The 90s, man. Such a glorious time for stability, for jobs, for the stock market, and for the McRib sandwich. But then, in 2005, horror of horrors, the restaurant franchise announced they were taking the McRib away from us. We should have known then that it was only the beginning of our downward fortune, with the recession just around the corner. But like every aging performer, the McRib came back again and again and again and again for subsequent farewell tours. And just like Cher, McDonald's kept doing it because people kept coming back. More and more of them, in fact, every time. The McRib was strengthening its hold as a cult icon with every reemergence. And it's officially back now, just in time for its 40th anniversary, but if you are not sure if your local McDonald's has the McRib available, you can always go to the fan-created McRibLocator.com, where people report when they've spotted McRib sandwiches so others know where to go. And if you want a more sophisticated drink pairing with your McRib, than high C. Ryan Reynolds and his aviation gin company have posted instructions for making a gin riblet. The cocktail combines tomato sauce, barbecue sauce, and gin with a squeeze of lemon and a garnish of a pickle and onion. Reynolds says it tastes like a Bloody Mary's hotter cousin. And in the video with the instructions, he also implored the company to bring back Grimace, which, you know, Agreed. And if you missed it, I did a whole segment on the erstwhile McDonald's mascot sidekick back in September. Link in the show notes to listen. I would love to see Sean Evans get a hold of some of these and use them to make some sauce for hot ones. NASA astronauts have successfully grown chili peppers in space and used them to make tacos. Apparently, Taco Tuesday has been a thing on the ISS for a while, as astronaut Megan MacArthur, in a tweet, referred to the addition of the chilies as making this batch of space tacos her best yet. She also posted a photo of a taco decked out with fajita beef, rehydrated tomatoes, artichokes, and chilies floating in space. Well, like, inside the space station, but, you know, that's still in space, and it was floating all on its own. This anti-gravity space taco is absolutely delighting me. You can see the photo of it at the link in the show notes, quoting NPR. As part of NASA's Plant Habitat 04 investigation, scientists began growing chili peppers aboard the ISS in July in an effort to understand more about plant-microbe interactions in space, NASA said. Astronauts have grown other crops, such as lettuce and radishes, in space before, but peppers are more difficult to grow in space because they take a relatively long time to germinate and bear fruit. Given that, NASA says these peppers represent one of the most complex plant experiments conducted on the space station to date. Here's how growing peppers in space works, quoting NASA. A team at NASA's Kennedy Space Center sanitized and planted 48 pepper seeds in a device called a science carrier that contains baked clay for roots to grow in and a controlled release fertilizer specially formulated for the peppers. The science carrier launched to the space station aboard SpaceX's 23rd cargo resupplying mission with NASA. The space carrier fits into the Advanced Plant Habitat, or APH, the largest of three plant growth chambers aboard the orbiting lab. The APH is about the size of a large microwave oven, and has more than 180 sensors and controls for monitoring plant growth and the environment. NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough placed the science carrier in the APH and added water to start the experiment on July 12, 2021. A team at Kennedy has continuously monitored the experiment from Earth, controlling watering, lighting, and other environmental conditions. Working together with researchers, the crew in orbit has regularly checked on the peppers and performed horticultural tasks like cleaning plant debris from the APH, as well as reducing the number of pepper plants down to four. Peppers are self-pollinating, and once pollination occurs, some flowers will start forming peppers 24 to 48 hours later. To ensure the flowers in orbit pollinated, the team at NASA's Kennedy Space Center instructed APH to run its fans at variable rates to create a gentle breeze in microgravity to agitate the flowers and encourage the transfer of pollen. The space station crew also provided assistance by hand-pollinating some of the flowers. End quote. And as someone who lived for a time in New Mexico, I also must proudly report that these were specifically hatch chilies. Hatch chili peppers are a type of green chili grown in the Hatch Valley in New Mexico. NASA notes that researchers spent two years evaluating over two dozen pepper varieties from around the world before settling on this particular cultivar of hatch chilies developed by New Mexico State University. Though in a kind of champagne-must-be-from-Champagne-France-to-be-Champagne kind of way, NASA notes that the peppers the astronauts grew aren't technically Hatch chilies since they were grown in space and not in the Hatch Valley. This particular hybrid, called Española Improved, turned from green to red as they mature, which means, as astronaut MacArthur pointed out, the crew got to enjoy both red and green chilies. Or, as you would respond in New Mexico when asked the typical question, red or green, Christmas. That's what you say if you want both red and green chilies or salsa. Now, Growing plants in space is key to preparing for future missions to the moon, Mars, and other longer missions where astronauts may have limited opportunities for resupply missions and limited payload available to pack enough for the whole trip, so they'll need to produce food themselves. And while complex and timely, growing crops in space has other benefits. All that packaged and dehydrated food loses a lot of key nutrients like vitamin C and K. Plus, it doesn't taste great. Adding some variety from fresh crops is a huge boon for astronaut morale. And on that psychological note, researchers are also paying attention to how caring for, seeing, and even just smelling plants is advantageous for the astronaut's mental health while tucked away in tiny, closed-loop environments for months on end peppers may prove an important addition. Not only are they an excellent and diverse spice to add to many different meals, but the aforementioned self-pollination, as well as general hardiness and ease of handling both before and after harvesting, make them a great pick for a space crop. So, long live the space taco. Oh man, Tropicana has gotten into the toothpaste game. Despite the promo photos featuring a bright orange tube of toothpaste with the Juice Makers logo on it looking like an April Fool's Day gag, it is apparently very real or, well, as real as any social media sweepstakes product ever is. Basically, Tropicana has decided to go all in on converting the market of people who don't drink their orange juice because they've already brushed their teeth. And as we all know, drinking orange juice after brushing your teeth tastes terrible. So Tropicana have created a toothpaste without the active ingredient that causes that phenomenon. I mean, you could just wait the appropriate amount of time after brushing before having your orange juice or any food or drinks, or just brushing your teeth after enjoying a nice cold glass of Tropicana orange juice, but I guess Tropicana doesn't want to risk it. For all those people who just have to brush their teeth before their morning juice and were avoiding buying Tropicana because they couldn't stand the taste of it mixing with their toothpaste, you now have an option if you enter the sweepstakes on the company's Instagram page before tomorrow. But more about this active ingredient. Quoting Adweek, In 1824, the story goes, a dentist by the name of Peabody, first name unknown, decided he would improve the common formulations of toothpaste, which then consisted of ingredients like ground rock salt and burned crumbs. Peabody added something actually cleansing, soap. In time, as manufacturers adopted the recipe, the soap commonly took the form of sodium lauryl sulfate, or SLS, a foaming agent chemically known as a surfactant. Today, nearly 200 years later, you can still flip over most any tube of toothpaste and find SLS on the ingredient list end quote. And Food & Wine summarized a Today I Found Out video from Simon Whistler to explain a little more of the science behind this, quote, Sodium lauryl sulfate and sodium lauryl ether sulfate are anionic surfactants, meaning they lower the surface tension of water. These compounds have an interesting effect on the dynamics in our mouth, causing a dampening of sweet taste buds and making bitter taste buds more sensitive. The result is that something like orange juice will taste less sweet and more bitter end quote. So Tropicana has decided to remove the SLS so that it won't sully their good name anymore. A spokesperson told Food and Wine, quote, Tropicana toothpaste is different from other toothpaste because it was specifically designed to protect the delicious taste of orange juice. It does not include sodium lauryl sulfate as an active ingredient, a cleaning agent prevalent in toothpaste that contributes to the bitter aftertaste from brushing your teeth with toothpaste and then drinking OJ end quote. Now, they're not the first ones to remove SLS from toothpaste. A number of toothpaste brands go without it, since it doesn't really do much on the tooth side of things anyways. But until more brands find an alternative, if you really want to, you've got one more day to enter Tropicana's Instagram sweepstakes and get your hands on a tube of Tropicana toothpaste. The one question I can't find an answer to, though, is what this toothpaste is supposed to taste like. Orange juice? Mint? Maybe I'll have to enter the sweepstakes just to find out. So I link out to the travel website Atlas Obscura a lot on this podcast. They share a lot of cool history in addition to just places to visit, and none of those links or what I'm about to say is sponsored, but I just wanted to share that they have launched their very first mobile app, and it is really cool. It's called the Atlas Obscura Travel Guide and unfortunately is just on iOS so far, but you know, if you've got any Apple device, I recommend checking it out. You can open it up wherever you are or anywhere you may be planning a trip and find off-the-beaten-path places to explore. They have 22,000 sites around the world in the app already, and it will only grow from there. I'm headed down to Alabama tomorrow, and I already found a couple of places to add to my list via the app. Yeah, I was already planning to hit up the Space and Rocket Center, of course, but now I'll know to look out for K-Rex, the world's largest Kinex skeleton sculpture. And if I have time, I'm going to try to stop by the unclaimed Baggage Center in Scottsboro, where more than 7,000 items from people's lost luggage are added to the center every day, and it's now a full city block size. It's so massive. In addition to giving you great recommendations and background info on each place for locations you might be visiting, the app could also be really good for exploring the town that you live in or places nearby that you could take a day trip to see. And again, this plug isn't sponsored. I'm just genuinely excited about this app and thought some of you might find it useful as well. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and khaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.